Hola! Welcome to Essential Nola Cinema, a conversation between cinephiles about the past and future of New Orleans movies. My name is Randy Mack, and I'm pleased as hell to have Stanley B. Gill with me today to talk about... Hey, Randy. Hey, how's it going? Today we're talking about The King of Herrings, the 2014 film co-directed by Sean Richardson and Eddie Jemison. Shot here in New Orleans. I, I always begin these interviews with, and by always, I mean this is the first time ever. So uh, I'm, br I'm breaking this format in with you. Hmm. Where did you go to high school? <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you go to school at? Down here, as we say, in New Orleans. Uh, I went to a uh, private boys' school called Archbishop Shaw in New Orleans. It's uh, in the uh, Catholic uh, region of all of the uh, Catholic schools here. Cool. And uh, since I didn't grow up here... What part of town did you grow up in, and where do you live now? West Bank, as as we like to say, uh, the best bank. Ironically, the best bank is south of New Orleans. So if you're in New Orleans and you look due south, you can look on the West Bank, but that's due to the Crescent River bend in the city. I call it non-Euclidean geometry, this, the whole city. Yeah, it's a uh, – let's see, what is it? If you stand looking north – uh, you look towards the lake south, you look towards the West Bank, you look to the west, you're looking to um, upriver and the east downriver. Right, exactly. That way you can't get confused by the curving roads and bizarre geography of the whole place. Uh, so, uh, yeah, The King of Herrings is one of my favorite independent films to come out of New Orleans in the last 10 years or so. Uh, when did you first see it, and what was your first impression of it? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I first saw it probably, uh, what, uh, two years ago? So uh, this is, what, spring 2020, um, and it was, King of Herrings was, uh, came out in 2013, so two years ago. Yeah, so apparently I've seen it, I saw it five years after it was released, and I don't recall how I came across it other than listening to industry folk that work here and we we probably talked about it or something so I, I really don't remember how it showed up on my radar but the fact that it was a locally shot and produced film uh intrigued me yeah it was put together by a team of lsu graduates who um, all came up with steven soderbergh in the 80s they were part of the drama school at lsu if you look at the cast, the the five main roles, Eddie Jemison, Joe Crest, David Jensen, John Meese, and Wayne Perret, were, they were all classmates together. So the whole thing came out of a Louisiana set of, of people. They've all gone on to have extensive careers working with Soderbergh and tons of other, you know, big-time directors. In, and uh, most of them, I think, live permanently in L.A. now. When they put together the project, it was always conceived as a sort of um, acting thing. It came out of an acting workshop, in fact. Um, Eddie wrote this script just to be performed as sort of a theatrical piece, and they brought it to their old mentor at the LSU Drama School for him to direct. The idea was originally to do it as a stage play, but um, the, their mentor by that point, the, the boys were all middle-aged at that point, and the mentor was on in his years. So he suggested they direct it themselves and just shoot it for a budget. And so the... The acting workshop became a play, became a film, you know, screenplay, which they ended up shooting. Uh, basically, from what I can tell from the notes, it was almost all shot in New Orleans with a couple of scenes in Baton Rouge. And I think one right outside of town somewhere, which I, I can't remember. As I was watching the film, I was looking for locations. And uh, there, was, there are a couple of locations where I was scratching my head a little bit. Like that train station that opens and ends the film is definitely not in New Orleans proper. 
Yeah, the, um, the, the thing I liked about it was the ensemble cast. When I watched it and I watched these actors work together, knowing I, I didn't know anything about the film. I didn't know anything about the actors or uh, the writer-director or anything like that. I had actually had talked to Wayne Pierre um, some time ago. I ran into him. I probably ran into him at the New Orleans Film Festival and saw some work that he did. He acted in a 48-hour a film project here in New Orleans that they have every year. And he did such an awesome job in it being a short film, you know, five to seven minute short film, that the first thing that struck out to me was, is that, and you got to remember, I didn't know who this was, but when I saw him in, that, in this little short, I said, this guy definitely has chops that you clearly did not get from here. And then when I started hearing about King of Herrings at the 2013 uh, New Orleans Film Festival, I put it on my watch list. So I guess it's been on my watch list for like five years. I can't believe it's been on there that long, but I have a very long watch list. If I stopped doing anything in life outside of eating, I would finish my watch list in like 2049. So... When I get on these kicks, I started looking at uh, what would be uh, New Orleans flair and uh, ran across it. Then I saw Wayne Pierre is in there, and I went, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that guy. Let me take a look at this. And then I started putting it together. I realized that he was such an established character actor, and he had the chops. I said, you just don't wake up one day and have this. And when I went and did a little research on King of Herrings and found out about the cast – and they had worked through LSU and had the same, I believe they had the same acting coach, if I'm not mistaken. Like you were saying, you were talking about a mentor. So I don't know if that is the same thing. Yeah, that's the guy. That, that was their, their acting teacher at LSU was their mentor. Well, that's the thing that struck me about this film is, is that this is the only film that I have seen. If you put aside studio projects, you know, films that are shot down here, Big studio budgets, and when I say big studio budgets, anything over $10 million. This was such a great cast that I liked the way they interacted with each other. You know, it sparked my interest is to find out, you know, who are, who are these actors? You know, where are they at? What are they doing? And that's when I uh, went down the path and discovered that, you know, all these guys and the director's wife, I play, I, she played Evie, uh, Andrea Franco. I believe that's his wife if i'm not mistaken no no it's the other one okay laura, laura lamson All yeah right. exactly that plays mary that's right so when i found out that uh that was the case and uh, she was a part the, the ensemble cast works so, so well uh, that, that it just uh intrigued me and it was a nice character study those kinds of films it's tough to get them out in the um distribution chain but there is an audience out there that absolutely loves character studies. And I really thought that th this film was uh, well worth watching. Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. I was really impressed with the bang for the buck. You know, when, when independent people put together their films, sometimes they'll try to rely on, like, a science fiction hook or they'll try to rely on, like, you know, a genre film like type of concept where it's like, Oh, it's a film noir, but it's set in high school, or it's um, it's we're going to do a heist movie, but it's a low stakes heist movie, or you know, it's all set in a bar on a single night, or whatever. Those kinds of you know independent film hooks. Um, these guys said we're going to make 
the characters and the character dynamics the front and central concept of the film. And I think that's that was the key that sucked me in, is that, listen, you and I are both directors, and we die for great actors that are willing to explore whatever characters uh, we've created. And I could clearly see that that's what this you know crew, this that cast was trying to do. Um, it works so well. I, if I recall correctly, once I finally saw it, I definitely put like a, a nice little review on my Facebook page and said that uh, you know I would really hope that one day I could get this cast you know in a film that I do because uh, they it was such a, a wonderful dynamic. This is the kind of dynamic that a director dies for. It wasn't one or two actors. It was the whole cast. You know what do we have uh, like half a dozen people in there. Having that kind of dynamic with that large num- uh, cast, um, I-, I thought was pretty special for the film. Yeah, definitely. It's it's the kind of great chemistry that that's really lived in and seasoned and nuanced that can only come from people who are really comfortable with each other and and understand each how to play off each other. The quality that comes from experience. Yeah, that's true. It's a uh, the fact that. They all knew each other already, and it's one thing when you know somebody from a personal level. Uh, it's another thing knowing them in the business sense. For instance, in the real world, as I like to call it, let's say you're an attorney. You know, you do contract work or something like that, and you know other firms in town, and you know those attorneys, and you may never work with those people. You just may know them in a social setting or a business setting where you know, maybe run into them a court or something like that or, or whatever the deal happens to be. In this instance, you know, actors and directors and writer and producers who know each other sometimes never work with each other. They never have an opportunity, not because maybe they don't want to work with each other, but it just is the nature of the beast because you may work with somebody and not see him for 20 years and then show up on another project and say, hey, <laughs> it's been 20 years since we worked on what other project. Uh, this cast, the fact that they knew each other from a personal level, had studied with e- each other and actually went out and did a film, I think was the uh, secret sauce that made this work. Yeah, there's a there's IMDb lists, I think, eight people in the, in the cast. They're the five major friends. Laura, the uh, actress who plays Evie, who's fantastic, and then the bartender at the very beginning of the movie and during the the the, what do they call that kind of poker where you put the card up it's like liars poker i think they call it and so that's the that's the whole cast and and in fact there's a major character who's never seen and that's the the man that evie's gonna marry he's a, a clearly a huge role like he's the one who's who's got the most to lose in terms of like her infidelity but that's a fascinating right uh, what if question of what would a scene between like Ditch and that guy be like? Oh, that's right. Since he's marrying Ditch's sister, you know, and you know how brothers can get about their sisters, especially a guy like Ditch. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that. Uh, so Eddie Jemison, he plays Ditch, who wrote and directed this. I I I, I definitely liked his character. Uh, I think that part of the problem that this film suffered from was that you had actor, writer, director. And I'm not 100% sure, even though there's Sean Richardson is listed as a co-director, uh, I'm not 100% sure how that worked out on the set. So Sean Richardson uh, is the director of photography. So he's listed as a uh, co-director. 
So I'm not sure if the parts in the film which suffered, you know, were caused by uh, trying to act and direct at the same time or not. But that was a sense that I got. I'm not saying it was a bad film. I'm just saying I saw, from a director's point of view, where that could have been an issue. Uh, sure. Let's get into it. What what are, what were the uh, what did you see as the major flaws of the film? Um, I I don't particularly like using the word flaw. Uh, because every filmmaker that makes a film has intrinsic things that are in there, either something that the filmmaker could not control or they could control but did it in a certain way that maybe some of the audience or maybe somebody else didn't agree with it. For instance, uh, one that comes to mind right off the top of my head was the HBO series called Chernobyl. And the very first thing that when I started watching it in the first five minutes, I realized because this is the retelling of the story of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in, in the 80s in Russia, that none of the actors had Russian accents. Not a, not, they didn't even pretend to have them or not. It took an entire episode for me to try to figure out what was going on. Like I, It didn't make sense to me. The creator, Craig Mazin, who was the showrunner and creator of that, said in his podcast the very first time he said that they were going to do that because he made a creative decision it was his show and it was his creative decision and i didn't agree with it at all from a creative standpoint i'm not saying it made chernobyl bad in fact i love the series it was great but in this instance bringing it back to king of herrings it's the same thing it's it's just my creative take on it it's not that i'm saying this is a bad film or it's a bad directing or a bad writing or bad acting or anything in that respect it's just my impression as a director would be that it seemed to me that that's the there was a vision that the film lacked meaning that in my opinion what i would have liked to have seen is a a, a much heavier hand as the director even though it's an ensemble cast and they're playing out these roles and these parts it seems to me that there was no hard vision from a director's point of view and I'm not saying that they put the camera down on a tripod and just said, okay, play it out like a stage play and whatever you get on, you know, on film, you get on film. I'm not saying that. It just seemed to me that, that, that there was no directorial kind of narrative thread that connected it together just from a director's point of view. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I share your opinion of, of Chernobyl's accent choice, by the way. Uh, <laughs> For what it's worth, that that was really strange. And I remember listening to that podcast because uh, uh, they did a podcast out of after every episode. That was the very first thing. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think Craig Mason used the term, you know, let's address the elephant in the room. And he said that and I went, okay, if I was sitting in a room and I had creative decision – and he had he overrode me. I would tell him, "All right, I don't agree with you, but uh, it's your show and it's your creative vision." That's the vision that he saw. I felt that his storytelling suffered from that. But what do I know? I mean, Chernobyl was a hit. A lot of people watched it. You know, did the audience, in a general sense, did they care or did they find it odd? Or five minutes into the film, they forget. You know, for instance, a recent film I saw some months ago was uh, Renee Zellweger and Judy. Five minutes into that film, I believed that Renee Zellweger was Judy Garland, and she knocked it out of the park. Of course, I know you remember me telling you that when I came out of that film, I said she's, uh, you know, hands down winner for the Oscar, which she did get. In that instance, 
I totally believe that character. In Chernobyl, I, it took me time, even though the acting was outstanding, to get into those characters because I just couldn't get over the fact that they all had different dialects. Maybe that's part of the reason, you know, maybe part of that thinking is from growing up down here because, you, uh, like, I have uh, British friends that they can tell me by listening to somebody what part of the city they grew up in which are certain uh, specific dialects that they can recognize. Uh, and I'm sure it's the same in New York, and I'm sure it's the same in Jersey and Boston and those kinds of things. Well, it's the same down here. In that, in that sense, as, as far as... It's the same in Russia, too. Yeah, uh, oh, there you go. Same as in Russia. In that sense, that bringing it back around to the directing, uh, even though in Chernobyl, I didn't think that would have been a creative decision. Not, I didn't think. I would not have made that creative decision. It's the same thing in uh, King of Herrings when I wouldn't have made the creative decision if I was involved to act, write, and direct. And there, are, listen, there are people out there that do that. You know, the Robert Reffers of the world uh, used to do that, you know, when we could do that uh, a, a long time ago. And, and uh, Clint Eastwood's another good example. But that was the only thing that this film had that I didn't agree with. I, I, don't, I don't like to use the word flaws or suffers from or things like that because I understand if I do a film and somebody you know, critiques it using those kinds of words, yeah, hey, listen, I, I'm not saying I have a heart of stone. But if you can't articulate the way that it affects you, then I, I, you're just <laughs> some other Joe in the street giving an opinion. So let's talk about the strengths of the film. Did, uh, what did you think of the cinematography? You know, I don't know what the choice was with black and white. In fact, that I had made a note about that because if you go back to something like Schindler's List, and I remember reading about how Spielberg had decided that he wanted to shoot Schindler's List in black and white, and the only color element in that film was the little girl in uh, uh, the city running around with the red jacket. But that was a distinct, specific directorial uh, clue that the director, Spielberg, wanted to put in that film. And I totally agreed with it because you're talking about you know World War II and the black and white filming was his uh, choice. Could you shot it in color and muted colors, or made it you know look like Kodak Ektachrome? You know, uh, back in uh, World War II, I'm sure you could. But that was a creative choice that he made. I agreed with it. In this one with King of Herrings, I couldn't understand why they shot it in black and white. I don't know if it was a creative decision or if it was something happened technically, meaning that when they got the you know, the dailies back or whatever. They said, you know, f there was a problem. Or whether they, you know, uh, uh, Eddie Jimison, the director, and the other creatives in the uh, film had decided, you know what, this film would work best with black and white. Whatever their motivation was for that, I, I just didn't see it. I would have much rather liked to see it in color. I didn't see the reason uh, just to do it in black and white, though. Well, hypothetically, you can someday see it in color. The uh, film was shot in color. It was designed to be black and white, though, from the jump. According to the research I did, the, uh, the reason was that they wanted the film to have a, a more classic, timeless look and be kind of devoid of, like, pop culture references that would date it. Stuff like cell phones and, like, you know, kind of hassle technology and things that would immediately make it a, a, a kind of... They wanted... Eddie and Sean were uh, inspired by... <laughs> Eddie has this great quote. He said in, in one interview... You ever walk into a diner and just see a bunch of guys hanging around a table that just reek of failure? 
Well, this is a whole movie about them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, I think the idea was to kind of evoke that these kinds of men have existed for a long time. Like, not just it's not just a specific generational thing that these are people you could have found in the 1800s or the 1900s and so forth. That, that's my understanding. I, I love that cinematography, though. I think it... I'm, I'm not sure what it brings as a storytelling component other than that, that kind of timeless look, but the, there's a beautiful sensuality to it and a kind of drab there's so little kind of like positivity in these people's lives that it's as if the color had been drained out of their lives so there was a parallel there for me i i uh i thought it was a bold choice and i kind of i tend to be more forgiving of bold choices like when a filmmaker just really goes for it in that sense so i i like the fact that they did that even though they did in fact you know shoot it in color um, but they they had always planned to so and that's where Sean came in I think as a visual designer of the film in terms of um, knowing how that uh, color palette would then bleed into a, a set of grays and so forth. No, I can understand that. It, it's um, you know, like I said, that if I had to flip a coin and and figure out what it was, I, it clearly was a uh, creative choice. You know, I, I just threw in a technical issue because in low-budget filmmaking, sometimes things happen that you can't control and you don't have the budget or the money to uh, overcome that. Um, but in this instance, I'm, I was like 80, 90 percent sure that it was a creative choice. I'm not saying it detracts from the film at all. You know, it gives its its own quality and character. We're talking the like the last percentile of creativity, where 99% of the film is absolutely fine. And we're just going in for a critical eye, you know, being industry-related, as opposed to, you know, two friends uh, talking over coffee going, hey, did you like that film or not, you know, and discuss it. We we're trying to do a deep dive into it and uh, dissect it for uh, what it was. Let me, let me give you a little more context for how it came together. Good. I did a deep dive into the interweb, and I found their original Kickstarter campaign, which is still out there. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, apparently the, they raised about 6500 bucks for post-production in 2011, or maybe production, rather. They, the goal was five grand. They raised 6500 and the, I think the final budget was about twenty grand. I don't know if that includes post-production or not. And then it premiered in October 2013 at the New Orleans Film Festival. I was lucky enough to be there. That was very cool. I got to meet Eddie and, and so forth and talk to them about the whole affair. And um, most of the cast was there as well. It was an interesting thing because Joe Crest and Dave Jensen, John Meese, and, and Wayne Perret and, and so forth, have they work all the time as character actors. They never get meaty, juicy, sensual roles and because of their particular physiologies and their faces, locked them into recurring types of people. Uh, David Jensen, in particular, is always playing a judge, I've noticed. <laughs> so I think they were writing these roles to show other sides of themselves, to break out of the typecasting that they've, they'd acquired over you know, 20, 30 years of professional acting in Hollywood. And I think that that's why everybody's kind of cast against type, especially Eddie Jemison, who is the sweetest guy I've ever met. 
And he's also, you know, plays like a borderline psychopath in this film. <laughs> that's true. It, it, that's something that interesting you bring up. I knew by going through their resumes and what they had done in the past and what they've done from the past up till now in the last, what, seven years, that they were character actors. And the one thing I absolutely love as a director is working with character actors because it's the only thing that you can do, in my opinion, in the cinematic process, in the creative process as a director working with a an actor is they literally bring you a blank palette and they say, I can play whatever you want me to play. Let's design a new character. I knew that about these actors and you're right. Getting the opportunity to play lead roles and to be able to play off each other being uh, an ensemble cast. It, that's why I go back to my original statement that this was a alignment of the stars. You had all this talent there on screen and all this talent being put together as far as their ability to work off each other, which was, you know, clearly was the fact that they were friends and that they had worked through the same acting classes and the same acting uh, casting coaches, things like that. That's the thing about them is being able to take that character actor hat off and put a lead actor hat on. And that's what I absolutely loved about the film. Yeah, that's a great segue into the next topic, which is how this film works as an independent role model, uh, hypothetically, as a template going forward into another movie. There's a lot of wonderful precedent for small independent directors, especially regional directors, uh, identifying a star in the making or a uh, or a character actor who needs like you know a new spotlight shined on them. A favorite example, there are two. There are two actually really great ones. There is the the classic case of Jeff Nichols seeing Michael Shannon on television and writing him into his like micro budgeted first film in Arkansas. Yeah, <laughs> of all things, and he wrote fan letters to Michael Shannon, and Shannon agreed to star in this like no budget Arkansas movie called Shotgun Stories, and Jeff Nichols has used Michael Shannon in every single movie since. And Michael Shannon is now a, a, almost a bona fide movie star. He played Zod, for Christ's sakes. So their careers were intertwined and grew together. And, and, of course, you have Michael B. Jordan. So Ryan Coogler saw Michael B. Jordan on some TV show and was like, oh, this guy is amazing. Like, uh, how come he's just a small role on some small TV show? And so he wrote him a role in his first micro-budgeted film, uh, Fruitvale Station. And, of course, you know, Killmonger is born and the rest is history. Yeah, you can get a lot of mileage identifying small character actors and giving them uh, lead roles because they will do it for the opportunity. You know, you won't have to pay them the Hollywood wages because you're giving them artistic satisfaction in a way that Hollywood can't. Well, let me turn the spotlight around to me for a second because this is all about me. <laughs> um, is One thing I have learned in my career is that... Uh, I remember somebody telling me something one day. We were talking, you know, uh, industry uh, shop. This was out in L.A. And they said, you should have been an agent. And I looked at him like, what are you kidding me? I would have never been an agent in a million years. And he said to me something that stuck with me. And the way I can paraphrase it is, is that if I have to have a superhero power in this industry, it's recognizing talent where – it's completely blank to anybody else. And I look at other people that are able to find talent like that, and generally it's agents because, you, you know, you hear – you read the stories from, you know, Hollywood, uh, golden years. Like so-and-so found uh, this actress in a diner, and she was a waitress and then turned her into the, you know, a big star, that kind of thing. 
The thing I absolutely love is this running across talent, especially in a film like this where that's why I love working with first-time actors. I love working with people who said, I've never acted in my life or uh, they never thought that they could be an actor or they've worked as a background actor or a character actor and they want some kind of lead role in something like that. I see parallels here in King of Herrings where clearly that these uh, guys and gals had an opportunity and they knocked it out of the park when it came to that ensemble cast. Yeah, uh, I, I had a, a similar experience with Laundry Day in, in terms of I cast a lot of musicians, a lot of stand-up comics, and a lot of street performers in supporting roles, including Samantha Huffman as one of the leads playing Natalie. Perfect and, example. Uh, came out of the circus community. Yeah, you can you can find a lot of talent in New Orleans that way. The the people who are used to performing in front of crowds tend to not be phased by cameras the way that non-professional actors are phased by cameras, you know? Yeah. They already have a strong sense of their own persona and a strong sense of um, uh, of just comfort in front of the lens. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And um, that's the dichotomy that I deal with and think about, and we've discussed this a lot, is being creatives in New Orleans, you know, looking for that kind of talent. We don't see thousands of actors on a weekly, yearly basis like you would see in Los Angeles because that's where all the cattle goes. And <laughs> and being able to pick out the right cow, to uh, paraphrase uh, something that Hitchcock once said. But there's very little acting talent in this town. I know I'm making a lot of my actor friends upset. There's a, are you, you're saying there's a low quantity of, of acting talent. There's right? a, low a low quantity level. of high-level quality acting talent because there's not that many people. Acting is something that you – it's just like any other craft. It's like writing and directing. As you and I both well know, you've got to practice that. You've got to work at that craft. You know, You can't just wake up one day, grab a bunch of uh, – paintbrushes and start slapping stuff on a canvas and call yourself a painter. The other side of the equation that we've talked about a lot is there is a commercialability about the stuff that we do. We want to create films that get a good box office draw, get a good streaming draw that audiences love. And if five people like it, yeah, we're happy, but we would like to have, you know, five million plus people like it, that kind of thing. In this instance, that um, the sad part of this film, and it's more of a, a sad level from a creative standpoint, is that, like you said uh, earlier, practically all these actors probably live in L.A. and they're probably doing uh, just well because character actors work an awful lot, that's for sure. They may not make the big dollars that big A-list kind of stars make, but they work an awful lot. It's not something that this town grows. If you grew up here, like you were asking me earlier about growing up here, I did the exact same thing. As soon as I got out of high school, I went to LSU for two years, and then I turned around and uh, went to Hollywood, and I spent you know three decades of my career there before I basically got everything I needed out of Los Angeles and moved back here. And so it's almost like you're in you know, trains going the opposite direction. Like, wait, that, that's some great talent, and they're going out to L.A. But the world's so much smaller uh, nowadays that it doesn't particularly matter where you live. If you want that talent or you want to be able to put them in uh, your film, that's great. I just wish there was more of a quantity and quality here in New Orleans. Yeah, we have to, I think as a small city, we have to find like clever hacks of kind of working around the, uh, you know, the fact that we're not going to see 
you know, 50 people for every role when you're casting a project, you're going to probably see four or five. Um, and part of that is creative imagination. It's also the ability to retailer a role around somebody. You may get somebody in the room who's sort of wrong for the role you wrote, but they may have a certain charisma or a certain talent set, especially if they come from a different kind of performing background. Like if they're a great juggler or something, you can write the juggling into the character hypothetically, and, and that creative flexibility can give you a, a, a way of working around the quantity problem. It's a, I also think about the fact that, like, you know, Eddie's a, a character actor, and he wrote this project for himself and tailored it for his friends. It reminds me a lot of, of Affleck and Damon writing Goodwill Hunting as a vehicle for themselves, and all the different actors who've written projects for themselves to act in uh, over the years and how good some of those projects actually turned out to be. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect example. Um, I would love to sit down with this entire cast and ask them, you know, did you know that stereotypical question? Did you know when you were making it that you were never going to get back that same je ne sais quoi, that, that same mise-en-scene of the all you guys in the same space working together? You might not ever see that the rest of your careers and how lucky you were to be able to do that with such you know wonderful talent. It's very rare that you can get you know a good stack of um, good actors uh, in front of the lens as far as you know as well as you and I know. Uh, even my last uh, short comedy film, Get Bingles, I had one, two, three. Four, I'd say half my cast were first-time actors, and one of them was a blind actress. Once I started crafting the, the cast and putting them together, I realized these are the people I wanted to work with. And that's what I loved about King of Herrings. I just loved the quality of talent that they had, and they worked so well together. It was such a dynamic. I was like, man, man, I would absolutely love to have them in a film that I would do. Yeah, they're all wonderful. Um, D David Jensen stars as a United cab driver in one of the best New Orleans independents made in the last... Yeah, King of New Orleans. 20 years? It's a great film. It is. A, I love that film. And it's it's filmed with a really weird history because it, I think directing passed through several people's hands and it ended up being finished by um, the producer at the end. It's one of those interesting things where I think the film was originally supposed to be finished and released before Katrina and then Katrina came in and they had to tack on all the a whole nother shoot to incorporate Katrina into the story and uh, David Chanson stars in it and uh, he's appeared in a lot of New Orleans work including Hollywood South work uh, as well which is great for him I and of course they, they because they all came from Soderbergh they all have small roles in multiple Steven Soderbergh projects. Most prominently, probably Schizopolis, which is the sort of nervous breakdown film that Soderbergh made in the mid-90s when his career was at its nadir. He went back to Baton Rouge with his tail between his legs after essentially... He shot a film called The Underneath, which he realized halfway through he didn't care about and didn't want to be making. And he kind of had, a, I guess, a little bit of a creative breakdown um, he talks about it in his book, Getting Away With It. He essentially goes back to Baton Rouge, where he had grown up and went to college, and he just starts making a movie, a kind of almost like a meta movie, where he stars in it, and he got all his friends from LSU to have roles in it, including Eddie and, and Dave and Joe and so forth. He cast his own ex-wife as the ex-wife of the main character and stuff. And then he apparently didn't have much of a script. He was just coming up with scene ideas on the day, and he shot it over a long, long period of time, just on weekends and stuff. Just kind of coming up with ideas and then shooting for a weekend and then ruminating and then going back and shooting for a weekend. And this is all pretty digital, so it was 
16 millimeter, I believe. And Schizopolis is like a bizarre artifact, um, worth watching for any filmmaker who, uh, wants to know just how crazy Soderbergh's imagination can be. And, uh, Eddie stars as his best friend slash nemesis, I guess the original frenemy co-worker who's like kind of undermining him and it's a, it's a great role. And then later, of course, when Soderbergh hit his stride and started, uh, he made Out of Sight and Traffic, he, when he made Ocean's Eleven, the 11th member of the team is Hedy Jemison, And he's in all three of the, the Ocean's movies. Yeah, uh, and it, you think about the talent, the uh, creative talent that was around at that time. You know, these guys have gone on to uh, do very well. I like the work. I, li- I definitely like the film. You know, I don't, I don't want it to sound like that I've, I'm, you know, I hated the film. I actually love the film. It's just, you know, when we discuss it from a creative standpoint, from a filmmaker standpoint, we're really micro-analyzing every single thing about uh, a film that could happen. Everything from a technical issue to a creative choice uh, to anything else. You know, you get into a... Uh, a you know, a conference room with uh, 10 directors and you give them the same script, you're going to get 10 different films. Uh, absolutely. I mean, overanalyzing movies or scrutinizing them or delving, uh, all of those words are what this podcast is all about. It's, it's trying to break apart and study and learn from and then apply the lessons moving forward as filmmakers. And for anyone listening, the podcast is designed for both appreciators of New Orleans films and maybe filmmakers who want to get started and want to like dissect all the technical things and kind of learn how it all works. And at the same time, uh, New Orleans people who maybe they work in one art or the other, or maybe they've made 48 hour films and want to think about how to make their own feature film to get going. The idea is to inspire their own thoughts about their own work and how they can apply the lessons from films like King of Herrings into into their own practice. One of the great role model angles for this film is also the use of locations. There's a kind of just beautiful economy to the locations. Really, if you think about it, it's only a couple of people's apartments, a couple of hallways, one very pivotal bathroom scene, and then a bar and a diner. And yet the film has... Uh, such a fascinating, growing menace over the course of the film that you're so caught up in the emotions of the characters and that whole feeling of, oh my God, what is this guy capable of? What's he going to do next? You know, what's going to make him snap? You know, that the drama pulls you in and you, you don't realize how small the scale is um, because you're so fascinated by the characters. You're right. Let's say you're an up-and-coming actor. You, you know, I don't care how much... Uh you've had on your acting resume or if you just decided you know what i want to get into acting this would be a great film to watch it would be a great character study to be able to watch each one of these actors bring that character to life that's like i said that's what i absolutely loved about the film and you're right it each one of those actors each one of those characters bring a little bit of um they they stitch together the tapestry of the uh, film story, and if you stitch it just right and you show it to an audience and somebody, I'm like, wow, that that's great. But this would be a great character study for actors, no matter what part of the career they're in. And this is talent. If you're here in New Orleans and an actor here in New Orleans or Louisiana, this would be a great film to watch to get you an idea of how these actors we're able to bring these characters to life in this film. Definitely, yeah. It's a wonderful example of putting, making the character the concept. You, you mentioned how you, you wrote about the film, 
when you saw it. Uh, actually, this podcast came out of a blog I wrote called Essential Noble Cinema as well. Huh. And uh, the blog, it's basically me going through the history of New Orleans films and writing pieces about whether they really count as New Orleans cinema or not, and if they do count, how so. Oh, no kidding. What I wrote is that um, it doesn't take a huge concept or vast scope to make a riveting movie, and New Orleans has a unique asset that lends itself to great indie filmmaking, namely extraordinary personalities. And by smartly writing for and around their fellow actors, Jemison and Richardson have made their characters the centerpiece, the central concept of the film. It's an invaluable lesson for indie filmmakers. Um, That's a great review. I, I, uh, can you tell me again who, who wrote that? Uh, that would be, let me get, uh, is, it, is it Andy? <laughs> and, Andy Mark? Andy Mark? <laughs> yeah, you, no, you hit the nail right on the head with that hammer. That's another part of um, like the projects I'm developing. New Orleans is a character all in, unto itself in every script that I have. And that's another thing that the King of Herrings did is that it definitely used New Orleans as a character in the film and used it to uh, great success. Could you have shot the film in Philadelphia? Could you have shot it in New York? Sure. You could have shot it in L.A. But yeah. I mean, I'm being a little bit of a homer here. Um, I don't think you would have been able to get the quality and the character of New Orleans across in your film if you ended up uh, shooting it someplace else. But the other thing is this is one of those films that was done here that, like you said, it doesn't have to be a huge production. It doesn't have to be a huge number. This was specifically a character study of these characters in their lives and where they came across each other and the arcs that they went through. And it did not take a lot of money. It did not take a lot of, I mean, they had no studio help, right? But in, if this was a $100 million film, it would have clearly suffered. I mean, granted, the filmmakers would have probably said, hey, I would have loved more money in the budget. True. But you were talking earlier about the actors, but if you're a filmmaker, you don't have to dream up these uh, high-concept kind of films. I mean, if you want to, go right ahead. But King of Herring shows you how you can make a character study and make wonderfully enticing characters uh, that people are going to sit down and watch. I think it's interesting that you, you chose the film because the plot of the movie, it basically kicks off with a poker game. And you've written Get Bingles is about a poker game yeah. in a way, and, and you've got a couple of poker game concepts. Um, yeah. There's something really interesting about the dynamic of these five friends where you have a, a very small thing. Somebody owes somebody $9, and then it becomes kind of a dick-measuring contest, male pride, all insecure and fronting, and everyone's trying to like be like, oh, no, uh, you know, like, no, you owe me, and you're going to shake my hand, and it becomes all about this posturing Thing. And then if they were like normal guys or just other people in the group, it probably would have been resolved in a day. But because $9 just happened to be owed by one guy who is incredibly like hyperbolic, hot-headed, borderline violent, a, t a human tyrant, and then another guy who will stop at nothing in order to undermine the other guy, you have essentially the immovable object meeting the, you know, uh, impenetrable force. Wait, that's not right. <laughs> Something like that. It's you, you have the two, like, least grounded people suddenly in this escalating pissing match where nobody is going to, like, back off, no matter who gets hurt or how. And Joe Crest's character, the professor, ends up basically 
deciding that because Ditch owes him $9 and won't shake his hand, that he's going to destroy the man's marriage. Yeah, exactly. It's great stuff. It's like this, It's almost like Greek in its tragic comic. All the, all the strengths of a, of a great tragedy and the characters of all the flaws of great tragic heroes. It's funny you should talk about the $9. And I find it hilarious because I've actually played golf with people that at the end of the game... Of course, you're not supposed to bet in golf, but that's all golf is about is betting. At the end of the round, you're sitting at the bar and everybody's settling up and you owe somebody nine bucks and you're like, hey, can I give it to you tomorrow? And they go insane. Their life revolved around that $9 that they they needed for some reason. And it wasn't the $9. It was the character problem, the character flaw. So it's funny. I've seen that happen uh, before. Not a lot, but uh, with uh, some, you know... People that I've played golf with in the past that uh, would go crazy if you owe, if you owed them three bucks and you're like, oh crud, you know I had twenty bucks on me. I figured that if I lost today, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't lose more than twenty bucks, but I lost twenty three. So hey, can I give you three bucks tomorrow? And they're, and they're like, no, and they go insane. I find that hilarious. That's what I, I loved about the film about the nine dollars. Yeah, there's there's one. It's one of my favorite sub archetypes of storytelling. The uh, the uh, wrong man on the wrong day kind of story. The the movie Falling Down is a kind of great example of or um or After Hours by Martin Scorsese where if it if it had been that same man on a different day it would have gone differently but because of where that person was in their life at that moment when that thing happened now it's all bets are off <laughs> you know hide the children uh, that's true it's uh and that's another one of my uh, favorite films is Falling Down with Michael Douglas I I don't know it, as a creator when you're creating those characters. Something very simple uh, as, you know, the, in a poker game. And, you know, poker was invented in New Orleans. And uh, so that's another th- uh, thread that is woven into the history of this city that's a great creative tool to use. But um, conflict and characters, that's what made King of Herrings a, a great film. Yeah, I, I totally agree. There's something wonderful about telling a contained story where it's the people become the kind of subculture unto themselves. You know, the, these are all, they're all middle-aged men. Um, there's one person who's had a tracheotomy and speaks through a, a device. You have a person who self-styles himself as an intellectual and so forth. They're all familiar and unique at the same time. There's just a, a wonderful specificity to them that, and you can, you don't necessarily have to take a known subculture of New Orleans. I mean, we all have these broad subcultures of the New Orleans cultural landscape, but you can get really specific and just focus in on a pack of people who essentially hang out under themselves. And of course you have the diner, the diner is almost like a character into the film. It's Anita's diner on Tulane Avenue. At the time they shot the film, there was no university medical complex uh, across the street. They had just raised that entire neighborhood. It was all under construction, so they, they had to do a lot of shooting around the sound of the cranes and bulldozers working. And when you see the exterior shots of them uh, walking up and down the street around that diner, you can clearly see the CBD in the background of one angle and Mid-City in the background of the other angles. But the diner becomes a kind of self-contained bubble for the characters to exist in. And so many of the conflicts and turning points in the storyline happen in that diner. 
because they couldn't really happen anywhere else. It's um, They seem like people who go to their apartments, go to work, and then go to the diner, and that's that's their whole lives. Um, it's interesting. It's almost like if you took side characters at a bar fly, like the really, the less colorful, less kind of zany right, ones, right. you know, and followed them around for a week, you might get a story like King of Herrings. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. It's like if you look at their one sheet, you know, I mean, it has New Orleans in the background. It's not a beautiful shot, but it's it perfectly fits with the story. Definitely a great character study, uh, a great film uh, for filmmakers in New Orleans, local filmmakers, Louisiana filmmakers. To you know, this is an example of you don't need you need more creativity than you need money. And even though money will get your film made, creativity, in my opinion, in the end, is what sells it. Perfect way to end the podcast. Big shout out to Bayou Brief Magazine, which did a whole history of the Marcello family and the New Orleans Mafia throughout the 20th century. They just published chapter two of it just a couple days ago, and they talk about the history of gambling here and what a huge role poker played in the formation of the of the city, as well as the role of slot machines and, and so forth and so on. Stan, where can people find you on the internet? On the interweb tubes, it's real easy. StanleyBGill.com. Cool. And you you have a blog as well, is that right? Yes, the, uh, the blog is HollywoodSouthBlog.com or HollywoodSouth.com. You can get there either way. I have migrated my writing over to stanleybegill.com. Hollywood South is uh, more of an aggregator for news information, industry talk, that kind of thing. But uh, I've been writing more on my Facebook, and but everything can be accessed through stanleybegill.com. All right, killer. Um, King of Herrings is available for streaming uh, all over the place. You can get it on Tubi, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube. It is definitely worth the rental. So support your people. Watch the movie. Enjoy it. In fact, you should probably watch the movie before you listen to this podcast. Note to self, put all of the streaming info at the top of the episode, not the end of the episode, for next time. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. I would uh, highly recommend you watch the film and then listen to the podcast. But if you've gotten to the end of the podcast and realized, oh, I should have watched the film first, don't worry. It's still good. Yeah, exactly. Um, thank you, Stan. It's been awesome having you. Thank you, Randy. All right, man. Thanks for inviting me. Subscribe! Review, tell your friends, etc.